0: Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. That's the text that the Lord and His providence has given us to focus on this morning. And I want to begin, as we always do, by reading the text. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now what we're seeing here is the risen Lord now tell his disciples that the gospel message is to be made known among the nations. And that his gospel is to be made known by his disciples. So what we're seeing in this text, the main point of what's being written here, is that the gospel message, Jesus is telling his disciples now, that the gospel message is to be made known among the nations. And that his disciples are to be the ones Proclaiming this truth. In other words, Jesus is now commissioning his disciples to make followers of him, to turn sinners to his salvation, to go into the world and to teach the truth about him to the world. And this commissioning comes with this sense of authority. They are given authority because the message is true and because Jesus is the Lord. That's why I try to preach with authority because it's not my words, it's the words of the word and the Lord Jesus is the Lord over all creation. So his words have authority. And so you too are to bring this message of the gospel to the world with authority, that it is true and it is binding on all men. This is what Jesus is giving here, is the commission to his disciples to make disciples. And this will be a permanent charge. This will be a permanent charge, starting with these disciples And moving into every disciple's duty from that point on until Christ returns. It's a permanent charge, and it's a far reaching charge. So I've entitled this message the Great Commission. And you've heard that phrase before, but this is what it is it's a great, permanent, far reaching, authoritative commissioning of the disciples. And this is according to Luke's gospel. And so this sermon will serve as part one of of this section here. There is a message now at this point in Jesus's life, death, resurrection. There's a message now that needs to be known And this message and this proclamation of the message has been part of God's plan from the very beginning. And now we're moving on to this part of the plan, proclamation of the message. And so this is now the next step of the plan, Jesus is essentially saying. I've done all this. Here's the next step of the plan that was predetermined in the beginning, proclamation of the message to the world. So, Since Christ has completed his atoning work, his disciples now need to proclaim the message. And this is the way, listen now, that God's name, that God's grace, that God's justice, that God's mercy, God's holiness, God's omnipotence, God's wisdom, God's authority, God's love, will be made known to the world. This is the way. The gospel encompasses all of those things in one. And this is the way his disciples will get that out to the world. It will be made known. God's name will be made known to the entire world. His disciples are the ones who will attest to it, who will assert it, who will affirm the truth. So here's how we've gotten to this place. Since the resurrection... Jesus has explained the scriptures on the road to Emmaus. Remember this? He appeared to the these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He explains the scriptures, and he opens up their minds. That happens on Sunday afternoon. And he, will, he has, as we've seen last week, and we'll continue as we kind of look into this more. Luke condenses a bunch of narratives here at the end. He will do the same for these disciples now back in Jerusalem. Okay, on Sunday evening. That's kind of where we sit right now in Luke's gospel. This is Sunday night. He rose this morning. He pierced the disciples on the road to Emmaus Sunday afternoon. Sunday evening, now back here with these disciples doing the same thing. Not included in Luke's account. He's going to do the same thing in eight days for Thomas. And then he'll do the same thing with the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Also not included here in Luke's gospel. And, we'll do the, uh, and then he'll do the same with the 500 probably on the mountain in Galilee, 500 people at one time seeing the resurrected Christ before he ascends. And then on that same occasion probably is when he'll declare this truth to his disciples to go and make disciples. And Luke's condensing kind of all of that into one narrative here at the end. He will send his disciples now to declare this truth. Who God is, what God has done, that it is true, and urge people to respond to the message. In this section, as Luke condenses these few events, the primary emphasis in which Luke is talking about here at the end is verse 47. It says in verse 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the main point and the key verse to this section in the way that Luke puts it. And so this was, this was the commission. Now listen, this is gonna serve again as an introduction. I just wanna point a few things out to you. Verse 46 It says this, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then verse 47, and that repentance of forgiveness for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. In other words, therefore, this point of proclamation to the world was also eternally decreed, just like the life, death, burial and resurrection of Christ. This is now the next step in God's plan. This is what he planned. This is part of God's redemptive plan that his disciples, which is what 48 verse 48 implies. You are the witnesses of these things so that his disciples beginning in Jerusalem at this point in history would go now to proclaim to the whole world to know and to worship and to serve the only true living God, the one who created them the one who created everything, the one who would have the worship of all people everywhere in every generation, which requires, verse 47 says, repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. And we gain a lot of insight here that this is to be told, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means that the sinner must be made aware of their sinful condition. Their separation from God, their ignorance of the truth, their blindness towards God, their enmity with God, their eternal offense against the true God, that they've gone their own way, that they're in desperate need to be reconciled to the one true living God, to have peace with this one true living God, to escape his eternal and just judgment because of their sin. And so then to turn from that sin and to trust in the gracious provision of Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection through which God's wrath is satisfied and can forgive them of all of their sins and their offense against this holy God. This is the message. You could say that all people everywhere should know, love, worship, and serve him in order to do that. It requires forgiveness because they are at enmity with this God, and they don't know that, or they do, and they're, they don't care. It requires forgiveness of sins, and to have forgiveness of sins, one must turn from their sin and trust in Christ, and in order for them to do that, that message has to be proclaimed to them so that they know how to do that. And his disciples are to be the ones who proclaim that reality. That through the empowering of the Father's sovereign gift of the Holy Spirit, that this next step in God's redemptive plan is to go and make disciples. And you and I desperately need to hear Jesus' words here. We got to hear his words here. They are his words to us about what we should be doing. They're his words. If you are in Christ, your task now until the Lord returns is to make disciples. That is your task. That is all of our task. If you are in Christ, this step now in redemptive history is to go and make disciples. That's always been part of God's plan. And now you are sitting in the middle of that era of History of redemptive history. That's where you sit to make disciples. So we're gonna spend a few weeks here. And I want this week, as I said, to serve as an introduction. And next week, we'll get into these verses in particular. This week, I wanna serve as a foundation about the Bible's teaching on evangelism. If we know that's the task, what is, what, what's underneath all of this that we can even understand this rightly because I'm afraid we have a little bit of a superficial understanding of it. And if you understand the magnitude of what is going on in evangelism biblically, I think you're going to do it. So we're going to divide the matter into four headings. Number one, the mission of evangelism. Number two, the meaning of evangelism. Number three, the motivation of evangelism. And number four, the message of evangelism. So the mission, the meaning, the motivation, and the message. And so I wanna start by laying before you the mission of evangelism. Here's what we need to understand, okay? God's chief commitment is to his own glory. He is radically committed to the glory of his name. Isaiah 42, eight says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to graven images. Isaiah 48, 11 says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23 says, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And so God is radically committed to his own glory. And that is true also in salvation. God's great and most ultimate end in saving sinners is not to make much of them, but to make much of himself to make much of himself. And you have to know this. Sinners are forgiven and they get the great blessings of having God, but he's the end of the gospel. First Peter tells us he saves sinners to bring them to God. Not that you would get your greatest thing on your own so that you can live independently from God, but so that you could be reconciled to God. That's the whole point of the gospel. And by getting God, you get the greatest thing that you could ever possibly have. And so the scriptures are not man-centered. They are God-centered. This is a redemptive narrative where God is at the center of the narrative. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed even when I have made. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five says, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake. First John two twelve says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are our sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Ephesians one six and twelve and fourteen says that all of our aspects of salvation are for his name, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 said, but God made us alive together with Christ so that in the ages to come, we might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so God is committed to this. Now listen, stay with me here. We need to understand that ultimately God's mission in the world is to bring glory to his name. How does God ordain this to happen? Well, he ordains it through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel or what we call evangelism. Romans 1.16, James 1.18, 1 Peter 1.23 says, this all happens by or through the word of truth. That's God's means 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. In other words, the gospel leads to conversions, which creates worshipers, which creates God being glorified. Pretty simple formula. So I want us to look at this progression through redemptive history. This is a biblical theological look. Now you have to understand that there is more to this idea of evangelism than your kind of topical surface level understanding that you've kind of created in this category. God has been doing something from the beginning of time. And so let's start with the creation. As the Lord of creation, God rightfully demands worship from all people. And then we see the fall. So we got creation and the fall, which is the rejection of his lordship. Then we have the promise of redemption. This is the proto gospel, meaning the gospel beforehand. Genesis three fifteen: I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's a seed coming to bring back to to bring back people to God, to to reconcile these people that God has created to himself. There's a seed established in this proto-gospel. Now, who's the seed? It's not Abel. It's not Cain. It's not Seth. It's not Noah. Well, we get to the Tower of Babel and God establishes nations in languages from that moment on. So now he makes it impossible for the nations to communicate with each other. So even if the seed does come now, they're going to need God's grace to get it to everyone. God spread it all out. Right? Genesis eleven nine. 9, therefore... That its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So what does God do at that point? God calls one nation through a man named Abraham. And the plan of redemption begins with the introduction of this particular nation. Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land to which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the seed becomes this nation. God chooses one nation to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. To make him known. That's why Israel was distinct. That's why God set up the ceremonial law for this nation to distinguish them among the other nations. This was the nation that served Yahweh and from whom, through whom, the seed, God's promise, would come. And so we have this isolation of Israel and then we have their witness. And so they have this law now that God has given them. And Israel's, Kind of great commission in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five through eight says, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments. Listen now, listen. Just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep them and do them, for that is wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples who will hear all these statutes. Okay, so they're given a law, and they're to be a, a witness that they serve Yahweh. And as they keep this law, here's what the other nations will say. Surely this great nation is wise and understanding, for what a great nation is, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord, our God, whenever we call on him, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteousness and as the whole law, which I am setting before you today. These other nations would say, you serve the true and living God. They were to be distinct. And then we move into the Davidic covenant to where Now, this seed is going to come not only through a nation, but through a kingdom. And this is where we transition to the monarchy. It becomes clear that God will draw the nations to himself through his ruler in particular. First Kings 8:41 through 43 says also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel when he comes from a far country for your sake for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven and in your dwelling place and do according to all in which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you and to your and, and do as do your people Israel that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. And so the nations were to know the true God through this. Now all of this, and I'm fast-forwarding, converges. Listen, it converges in the New Testament. Who's the seed? Where's the seed? Well, Luke 1:31 through 33. Behold, you will conceive, and in your womb bear a son, and your name, and you shall call him what? Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The understand that at this point is that the emphasis is now on the extraordinary salvation that God provides through his son, who is the seed to the nations. And so God is on a mission to bring glory to himself, and now we see it is made possible and done through his son for both Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6 says, It is um, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore uh, the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, listen now. In other words, this plan that was happening through one nation is too small. It, it's it's his He's too worthy to only be known by one nation. He needs to be worshiped and served by the entire world. And that was his plan from the beginning. He was just working it through this one nation. So God will bring glory through bring glory to himself through the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the king of Israel. And now we understand his son Jesus Christ. And so this is the mission for God's people which is now revealed. And this is the means by which God will call and bless the nations. Mark 16:15 through 16 says, He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Luke 24 our verses here He's saying the same thing. John chapter 20, verse 21 So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so also I will send you. And so, how did the Father send Jesus? Listen, what was his mission statement? Well, Mark 10 tells us to seek and save, Luke 4, to preach the kingdom of God, John 1, to forgive sins, John 3, to give eternal life. 1 Timothy 1, to save sinners. 1 Peter 3, to bring people to God. And so that mission, listen now, that mission informs our mission. Now we pick up the mantle and this is our mission. As God's people, Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts 1 8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. By the way, some people take that verse and say, What's your Jerusalem? What's your Judea? What's your Samaria? Listen, that's not an appropriate interpretation of that text. You are the ends of the earth. It literally started in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Guess where you sit? The ends of the earth. The gospel has gotten to you from Jerusalem. Now you just keep bringing it on to the ends of the earth, right? You don't have a Jerusalem of yourself and a Judea yourself and a Samaria yourself. You're the ends of the earth. The gospel's gotten to you. Literally, it started in Jerusalem. And now you bring it continually to the ends of the earth. So this is the commission that Jesus makes. And it's now an issue of obedience. Evangelism is the mission of the church. Evangelism is the mission of the local church. Listen now. The church's commission is to go proclaim. If you say, What is the mission? Listen, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church, strictly speaking, what do we go do? What's the mission? What do we go out there to do? There's only one it's not to alleviate poverty, it's not for societal transformation. It's to evangelize, to make worshipers of God. Those things can assist. By the way, most of the times it speaks of aiding the poor in the New Testament. It deals with those inside the walls, inside the church. That's what it's speaking about in the New Testament. Rarely do you see the church's mission be commissioned to go and alleviate the world's poverty alone. That's not the mission. You can do that if it aids in gospel sharing. But you're to take care of the poor in the church. And by the way, as an individual Christian, sure, do good to all men as you can. If you have the resources and the time to do it. First comes family, then comes the the church and its elders, then comes the, uh, the, uh, the, the people in the church, then comes your neighbors, then if you can, all men. But one thing you are to do to all men for sure, no question, all of the time, for the lost world is to evangelize. The church is built up, the world needs the gospel. Very simple. We come here to be built up, the world needs your gospel. Needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a level of ethics as to what you should spend your time doing for the world. But always first and foremost is to you is for you getting them the gospel. Because this is God's mission that all the world would know him and his glory and serve him and worship him. Now listen, this is the mission. And this has been God's mission. And I condensed, there's a whole lot more to it. But God has been doing this from the beginning of time. This is a lot more than you just having a soft place in your heart for a lost person. You should, but God is moving redemptive history forward to create worshipers and servers of him because he's the only true living God and he is worthy of the world's worship. Now let's talk about the meaning, the meaning. Okay. What is evangelism? Charles Spurgeon says evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Dwayne Lifton says the act of giving verbal witness to the gospel, the heralding of the good news to all who will listen. J.I. Packer says, according to the New Testament, evangelism is just preaching the gospel. It is the work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message to sinners. It's proclamation. It's proclamation. Now listen, okay? Okay. Oftentimes people ask me, and especially Sunday night, we've been talking about a little bit about presuppositional apologetics, and I won't get into that now, but presuppositional apologetics, if you have been asking, is just evangelism. It's just evangelism. You just know the truth of God's word, and that's your message. Nothing else, right? You just assume it's true. You know it's true, and you are just now sharing that message as if it's true, Well, that's just the same thing as evangelism. So your apologetic should not move into other fields, particularly evidences of the world, et cetera. Those can help and assist, but your apologetic is simply evangelism. Share the truth of God's word that you know to be true. And this is what evangelism is. Listen now, there are several words that give us clarity as to what evangelism is in the scriptures, and I want you to hear them. Listen close. Okay, because this helps. Okay, euangelizo, that's, this is one word. Okay, and it means this, to bring or announce good news. That's one way in which evangelism is described in the New Testament. So what is it? To bring or announce good news. So what is evangelism? Let's not just make our own definition up. Let's understand what words the Bible uses for this act. It means to bring or announce good news. That's what the word literally means. That's one way the Bible describes it. This is where we also get the Greek, uh, where where we also have uh, this Greek word, this root, angelia, which means message, or the verb, "angelo," which means I report. It's all about reporting a news. This uh, This is where also we have the root for angelos, which is where we get this term angel, which is a messenger, right? And so... And it's pretty simple. The you on the front is this well or good. And then we have Vangelion, which is the news. It's this good or well news. And if we use it as a verb, it's as if you are, you are good messaging. You are good newsing. You are good reporting. Right? So that's, that's it. We have this. Uh, and, and that's part of what we have to do. We have to verbally announce this. Now, we all also have this word, didasco, which also uses, is used in the New Testament to describe evangelism. And that means more so to teach, to provide instruction for. So what you're doing is you're good-newsing and you're teaching. You're bringing the truth to somebody about what? About the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also have the word Caruso that's also used to describe evangelism in the New Testament. And that's a herald or announce or make known or proclaim aloud. And so it's this good newsing. It's this proclamation. It's this teaching. All of it is described, describing evangelism. All these words are describing the act of evangelism in different places in the New Testament. It's this proclamation of the gospel. Also used to describe the act of evangelism is martyretto, which means to uh, uh, confirm or attest to something. You guys can hear it in there, but that's where we get the word what? Can you hear it? Martyr. One who testifies. One who testifies. That's where we get this word martyr. Also, we get the word pytho which is to persuade or convince. That's also used to describe evangelism in the New Testament. All of these words in different places are being used. And in the context, what you understand is what's being meant here is evangelism. And so all of these words are almost used synonymously to talk about evangelism. And this means to persuade or to convince. And so what do we have here? We have this bringing of good news, this good messaging, this providing instruction, this heralding and announcing, this testifying to, this persuading and convincing. That's what is, is, is being used to describe this. Apangello, or katangelo is to make something known publicly. That's another word, to announce it. And so what you have to understand is the common thread before between all of these. Listen now, what does it mean to evangelize? The common thread, as the early church understood it, is that the word of God would be made known, the truth of God made known verbally to sinners. Persuading, teaching, convincing, convincing testifying to, heralding, proclaiming, all of it. That's how you do this biblically. That's how you do this biblically. It's always verbal. It's always verbal. You, some people use the phrase and you know this, share the gospel all the times and when necessary, use what? Words. That is not biblical. Biblical. Always use words. And it's always necessary to, use, to, to share the gospel. And it's always necessary to use words. That's how people come to a knowledge of the truth. So this is what you are to do. Evangelism is proclamation of the gospel. And this is what we must understand. Now, I wanna tell you a few things that evangelism is not. It's not results of evangelism. Evangelism is not the results of evangelism. You might say, well, no duh. Well, listen now. Evangelism, Mark Dever says in the gospel and personal evangelism, may not be defined in terms of results, but only in terms of faithfulness to the message preached. You got one job to convince, proclaim, teach, make known, testify to, persuade, convince the sinner with the message of the gospel. You don't have to worry about anything else, Right? This is what you are to do. Anything else will keep you from evangelizing. Mark Dever also says, I'm sorry, this is John Stott. He says, to evangelize does not mean to win converts, but to simply announce the good news irrespective of the results. Evangelism is also not inviting unbelievers to church. You should do that. You should certainly do that. Bring them here. And don't be ashamed of the word of God being preached. Some people I think feel, if I bring my lost person, they're going to um, be hit with a fire hose, right? Not only be shot at with the fire hose, the fire hose is gonna hit them. But listen now, the truth of God's word is what will make them aware of their sin and how they will come to know Christ. You can't be ashamed of the gospel. That's what Paul said. I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed, right? Right? And that's why he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation to everyone who what believes. And so it's not inviting someone to church. You should do that, but don't say I shared the gospel when you invited someone to church. You have to share the gospel. That's what Jesus is calling his his disciples to do. Uh, uh, evangelism is not praying for unbelievers, but you should do that. But you should also know there's a distinction. You must pray, but you also must share. It's also not sharing your testimony. You should do that. But there is an explicit gospel message that must be shared for a sal- sinner to come to salvation. Mark Dever also says, the, an account of a changed life is a wonderful and inspiring thing. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that explains what it's all about and how it happened. It's the gospel that turns sharing a testimony into evangelism. He also says testimony is of course popular in our postmodern, that's a good for you age. Who would object to you, to, to you thinking you've gotten something good from Christ? But wait and see what happens when you try to move the conversation from what Jesus has done for you to the facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and how it applies to your non believing friend. That's when you discover the testimony is not necessarily evangelism. And so we have to share the, the gospel. Evangelism is also not social action or maintaining some sort of Christian presence. You should have a Christian presence. But that's not evangelism. Mark Dever says, displaying God's compassion and kindness by our actions is a good and appropriate thing for Christians to do. But such actions are not evangelism. They commend the gospel, but they share it with no one. To be evangelism, the gospel must be clearly communicated, whether in written or oral form. Dwayne Lifton says this, Despite the fact that so many today seem to think otherwise, one simply cannot preach the gospel without words. Let us say it again. The gospel is inherently a verbal thing. The preaching of the gospel is inherently a verbal behavior. If the gospel is preached at all, it must be put into words. And so it's not just a Christian presence. It's not. And let me say this as we close this number two of the meaning of evangelism. And the rest are, are rather quick. As we talk about the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 18, you have to understand. You have to understand what's being said there, okay? And listen, now, I don't normally like, you know, to do all this because it, 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 it just, it, it, we have good English translations in the Bible. But to convey it properly, let me explain to you. In the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, really 18 through 20, there's, there's one verb, there's one finite verb or regular verb, and it's make disciples, mateteo, make disciples. That's the verb. The rest of those elements that look like verbs are participles. That means ing. And I-N-G words are directed sometimes toward the verb, to inform the verb. They're what's called verbal adjectives or adverbal adjectives. They describe the verb. They can also describe a noun, but they're I-N-G words. And those three I-N-G words are directed towards the verb in the sentence. They're informing the verb. What are those I-N-G words that are describing the verb, acting as adverbs? They're what? Going, teaching, or baptizing, and what? teaching. So the one finite verb, make disciples, and it's in the imperative form. It's got the imperative at the end of it. That means it's a command, right? It's got the imperative ending on it. That means it's a command. So there's one command, and then there's three participles directed towards the verb that are informing it. How do you make disciples? You go, you baptize, and you teach. The go, we've said it before a long time ago, and it's just not true. As you are going, what the word means there is an intentional journey to go from point A to point B, which means that your evangelism is intentional. You live in such a way that you view your life as I'm going to go over there to evangelize. It could be to your neighbor or it could be to the nations. It should be both. Right, But you're going to make a decision to say, I'm going from here to there to share the gospel. That's the going aspect. Baptizing, it's a representative of salvation happening. Salvation happening, right? In the local church especially. But salvation is happening. You're going, you produce a convert, who is testifying to their conversion through baptism. And thirdly, teaching. This is the way disciples are made. Teaching. Teaching what? The word of God. So they grow up in their faith and they become on mission for God. That's what it means to make a disciple. Going, intentional going. You have to live an intentional life of evangelism. That's part of the great commission. If not, it's disobedience to what Jesus is saying. Baptizing. Producing converts who testify to their faith and teaching. That's the verse, plain and simple. That's what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And so it's this verbal proclamation, this convincing, this testifying to, this persuading, this heralding with the explicit message. We've heard some things that it's not. And Jesus has described strictly what it is in Matthew chapter 28, when the finite or normal verb is to make disciples. And you got these three participles that inform how that's done. And so it's (laughs) very important we understand what Jesus is saying here. Let me say one more thing about the meaning of this. Because how did the early church do this? Well, we see really three main instances in which they do this. Listen now. In the jails, house to house, open air, and in conversation. So you say, well, the meaning of evangelism, how should this happen? What should this look like? In what arena and what scene? Well, in the New Testament, we see most of the scenes in jail, house to house, open air, conversation on, I forgot, the synagogue and temple. So you got the jail, house to house, open air, conversation, and the synagogue and temple. That just kind of sounds like everywhere, doesn't it? So that's what it is. Now, let me, I said, let me say one more thing about this. Let me say one more thing. How do you handle rejection? Biblically speaking, and I don't have time to get into this. When do you walk away? If you're talking about the meaning of evangelism, not being results driven, just bring proclamation driven. When do you walk away? Well, biblically speaking, when you walk away, you leave when the message is either mocked or rejected. That's biblically, that, that's the biblical pattern. When the message is either mocked or rejected, you leave. It doesn't mean that you don't go back and share with them again. It just means that God in his sovereignty is not opening up eyes and softening hearts at that time. And we have to trust in the sovereignty of God and salvation. If you don't, why do you even pray? Why do you pray for sinners to be saved if you don't trust in the sovereignty of God and salvation? He's gotta do this work in the sinner's heart. And so we have to understand, we go... And you can leave in peace that it's up to God to do the work in this sinner if you faithfully share the message. And when do you do so? Well, when it's rejected. Doesn't mean you don't come back to that person. Doesn't mean that you don't ever want to get an opportunity to share with them again. But it might not be the right time. God's timing in terms of their salvation. And so you should not take rejection personally. You should continue to pray for their repentance but you should trust God. And so that's that's the meaning of evangelism. We've seen the words, we've seen what it's not, we've seen Matthew 28, and all of this is just brief. And we've seen what to do with rejection. Now let me talk about the motivation, briefly. The motivation, listen now, there is fear, there is nervousness, and I understand that. And we aren't to be motivated by shame, right? We are to be motivated by the Lord's words. We should feel conviction if if we're not doing this. You should feel conviction if you're not evangelizing. If you don't feel conviction, you should question whether or not you're a Christian because Christians feel the conviction when they realize what they're not doing according to the word, okay? And then you repent, okay? So you should feel conviction. And so, but what are we motivated by? Well, in the scriptures, we see that we're motivated by a love for God, right? We see all over the word that if we love God, we will keep his what? Commandments. You're motivated by your love for God. And that's why in the beginning, I want you to understand this is a way bigger picture. This is about God extending his glory to the nations. You've got to see that. And if you love God and believe in him, then you will want to obey him in this. And so it's motivated by a love for God and obedience to him. And uh, if you love him, you'll express that in your obedience to evangelism. And so secondly, love for God expresses itself in love towards who? Others. And so this is just a natural extension. You love God, so you're motivated to evangelize. And you love people, right? And you love people, If you're a Christian and you're pursuing Christ and you are following him and you desire him, you must also therefore want the highest good for your neighbor. You want them, in other words, to experience and have the same benefits that you have. That's loving your neighbor as your what? Self. In order for them to do that, they have to have the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we obey him and we want to glorify him, and we love others, we will be evangelizing. You also should be motivated by just not wasting your life. You've got one life on this planet and you can spend all that time focusing on yourself and your trinkets and everything on the internet or you can spend the time seeing people come into saving relationship with Jesus Christ and being transferred from the kingdom and the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light through you expressing the gospel to them explicitly with your words. If not, you'll be wasting your life. Literally, we'll be wasting your life. So, your love and your, your, your motivation is the love that you have for God, the love that you have for others, the desire to not waste your life, but even going back to what I said in the beginning, the glory and the worship of God thats that he deserves among the whole world. John Piper in Let the Nations Be Glad says this, if your love for God and his glory is weak, if he does not appear to the eyes of your hearts to be that satisfying, that lovely, or that glorious, then when the difficulties and discomforts come, it will not be long before you succumb to what is more natural to your flesh. That is because the fuel that ignites the fire of obedience is love for God himself. No one will be able to rise to the magnificence of evangelism if they do not feel the magnificence of Christ. John Cheeseman. And the grace of God in the gospel says this, love for God is the only sufficient motivation for the gospel. Self-love will give way to self-centeredness. Love for the lost will fail with those whom we cannot love when it's difficult. He says that we must be motivated by the love of God. Now, let me get to this last point here, the message of evangelism. And this is just serving as a foundation for this section in Luke we're gonna to touch on all these aspects again as we work through the actual text starting next week. But let me get through this last part, the message. What's the message of the gospel? Well, I want you to hear and some of this, if this sounds obvious and simple to you, it's because it is. The Bible's clear, it's just clear. And it's, it's written so that you can understand it. You should know a lot of this already, Right? I'm not unlocking some arbitrary allegorical you know, secret behind the scenes. This is what God has been saying all along. Now it's time to hear it and obey it. So what's the message? Well, let's hear it by, from John the Baptist. Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. What about Jesus? How did he evangelize? From that time, Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke 18 Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven, he says, and come and follow me. That's part of it. What about Peter? In Acts chapter two, Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you shall, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts three, repent, therefore, and return, that your sins might be wiped out. What about Paul? Paul says in Acts 17, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Romans ten nine says that if you confess with your mouth and Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Second Corinthians five twenty one, Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know this message. It's not anything different than you've heard. They're saying the same things, but you can take note of some of the things that are being emphasized, like repentance that we so often leave out. It's not loving to leave out the truth about somebody's sin. As much as you might feel that way, if you do that, you are also again claiming to be more loving than God because that's the way he designed this message to be proclaimed. Let me tell you briefly about the contents of this message. First of all, biblical evangelism is God-centered. So it's got to include God's holiness, man's sinfulness, Christ as Savior, that we need to repent and trust Christ, and that God himself is the end of the gospel, the goal of it. So biblical evangelism is God-centered. It's also driven by theology, In this day and age, theologians usually don't evangelize and evangelists don't usually have good theology. We need to be both. You need to be both. You're not gonna tell someone a message that you're unsure about and that you don't really have clarity about and also lead them astray. I don't want you to do that. Don't go evangelize with anybody till you get that straightened out. But if you also know the word of God in truth, then that that, that it's true in what it says, then you should go out and share that with other people. We want to be evangelistic theologians here, right? The goal is not to reduce the gospel to a minimum. That's not the goal. The goal is to explain the truth. So, biblical evangelism is also discipleship oriented, it doesn't stop with a decision. Biblical evangelism emphasizes The faithful following of Christ above a one time spot on response. Right? It teaches an unbeliever to count the cost. Right? It teaches uh, 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 an unbeliever that they have to continue following Christ and submitting to his Lordship as the evidence of their true decision. True evangelism talks about the brevity of life. Right? So listen now, let me give you critical components to this. What are the the essential things to evangelism? Well, let me just sum them up like this. And we've always told you this. Who God is, who man is, who Christ is, how we respond. Pretty simple, right? And so teach them that God is holy. He's the creator of everything, right? He has the authority over all creation. Everyone's accountable to him. As much as you don't wanna be, he made you and you are accountable to his law, whether you like it or not. And whether you say, I'm gonna go my own way or not, you will still stand before his throne. that takes humility to receive that, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 24, to each is the Lord's, Uh, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it upon the seas, established it upon the waters. Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on the thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all of its fullness. Not only is he the creator and Lord of all things, but he's also holy. He's without any sin, completely pure, perfect, all powerful, set apart, knows right from wrong, the only God, the only ruler of creation. First Samuel 2:2 2, 2, There is no one holy like our God. There is no one uh, there is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Habakkuk 1:13 Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on the wickedness, on wickedness with favor. Psalm 5 says he hates the sinner. I know some of us say, well, he hates the sin, not the sinner, but he doesn't send the sin to hell. He sends the sinner to hell. The sinner is at enmity with the holy God because of their sin. They've got to understand that and they've got to understand God rightly. One time when I was in seminary, we're almost done by the way. One time when I was in seminary, I was in a class, James Hamilton was our teacher in some systematic class and we were in theology proper and he gave a picture of God and I went home. And when I got home, You know, the carpool of friends dropped me off. Chad was with me. When I got home, I went into my room and I got down on my knees and I wept because all we did for that hour class that day was get a right understanding, a biblical understanding of God. The sinner has to have an understanding of God and God requires perfect obedience to his law requires perfect obedience to his law. And yet we fall short, right? We fall short of this. The Bible says God is light in him, is no darkness at all, right? And he's got this perfect law and that's what he requires. Matthew 5, 48 says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. James 2, 10, forever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all of it. We fall short and there's a penalty that's the, that's the next step. We've sinned. We've all sinned. There's no one, the Bible says, that hasn't sinned. Everybody has. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They need to understand this. And then you need to show them the penalty of their sin, which the Bible describes as being apart from God forever. Ecclesiastes about our sin says, indeed, there's no one righteous, not a man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. Romans Three, there's no unrighteous, not one. You guys know all of this. Sin is disobedience and rebellion towards God in the way that we live. Now listen here, listen. The penalty for that is separation from God. Relational separation, right? People created in his image to live with him in relationship, to enjoy him and to know him now are alienated from him. In this world, And also in eternity, listen now, there's judicial separation, which means they are separated from God in terms of his judgment on them in their life. So who God is, that we are all sinners, that there's a penalty for that sin, which is alienation from him in this life and eternal separation from him in the next. I'm moving through this pretty quick because of time, Um, but I'm gonna give you something that'll clarify it i are almost done. The next aspect that's important is that no good works can save anybody. God's holy. We're all sinners. There's separation from him as the penalty. Your good works can't save you. They've already made you an enemy of God. And in addition to that, you can't do enough of them now to make up for that. You just continually go into more and more debt From God, right? Titus three says he saved us not on the basis of our deeds that we've done, but according to his mercy. Now the next step, that Jesus Christ alone provides salvation for everyone who believes. That Jesus came to the earth as both God and sinless man. We've talked about why that's so important. I can go over that with you later if if you have questions. That he died on the cross, remember substitutionary atonement, what we've been talking about really through the last six months of Luke. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and restore us back to a relationship with God, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God, right? So this is the other element. Now listen, Jesus also rose from the grave, is alive today. We talk about the resurrection and then we instruct them to repent and believe, to turn away from their sin and living for themselves, to repent of all that dishonors God and to trust in the merit of Christ alone for their salvation. A good question that I like to ask oftentimes when we talk about this is if, God were to, if you were to come before God today and he were to ask you, what have you done that I should let you into my kingdom? There's only one answer. And this shows whether or not the person is trusting in Christ or not. The answer is only this. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. That's why you should be led into the kingdom. There's no other answer. If the answer has anything to do with your good works, you don't know Christ. The word that's translated into confessing in the Bible is literally to say the same things. Homo legale, meaning to say and the same, say the same. That's why when we require repentance here in this church with church discipline or with someone coming to know Christ, we require them to say the exact same thing that God says about their sin, because that is confession. They need to know their condition and confess it. It means to say the same thing. So they confess their sin, they turn away from it, And they trust in Christ as the only one the only merit for forgiveness of sin. And as you end the conversation, you don't wanna give false assurance. You just don't. You're not, our evangelism teacher in seminary used to say that we're not in the assurance business. You wanna encourage them to keep following Christ. Celebrate with them for the decision they made, but encourage them to work out their salvation. And so listen, what I want to provide for you guys and what we just revamped and redid is our gospel track that many of you guys have used before. And we just clarified, brought more verses, made made this more faithful to the gospel, okay? Bo and I worked hard on this together. Laura produced it for us. They're outside in the lobby at every door right here. These three doors, they're on both sides of these uh, th- these double doors here. And they're on also the other, the other door that you use to walk outside there in the front. You can always grab one. I want you to grab one today. And this is something that you can use to go sit down with a lost person in your life and just walk them through it. Open up the Bible with them. Share this gospel message with them. And we believe it's more faithful even at the end. It asks for a response. Will you repent and believe in Christ? And so you can take these as these gospel tracts and use them to help you in your evangelistic effort. And my hope is that as we make our way through this section of Luke, that we'll, it will ignite in us a desire and a passion to make Christ known. So let's pray. Father, we come and I just pray by your mercy and by your grace that you'd use some of this to make us obedient your commission, as we kind of have a foundation here of what your mission is, how it existed be, before us, it's really been happening since the beginning of time, what it even means to really be on mission, what your word uses as the words to describe evangelism as we see what your commission is in Matthew 28 and how it informs our our understanding of the meaning of it, how we realize what is not and what to do with rejection, how we even understand how we should be motivated by love for you, love for others, a desire to see your name be made known around the world and a desire for your glory and an honor to be worshiped a desire not to waste our lives. God, and we understand as we understand the contents, the very essentials of the gospel message itself. I pray in all of this, you would make us people thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we would obey your call to go and make disciples of all nations, that there are people in our neighborhoods and people in the other nations who do not worship the God that created them. And Lord, we wanna be the ones used by you to make that, to change that. Lord, we also pray we know that to go to the nations requires a lot of different strategy, a lot of different logistics, language learning, etc. I pray by your mercy and grace that if you're calling to some, some to go to the nations that they'd be willing to go through all of that it requires to make your gospel known to unreached people. But that all of us would go to our neighbor's starting this week. In Jesus' name, amen.